it's very odd that term dropout has become almost a source of pride for many. And I don't say that in a joking way, like honestly. For the people that came in the early 2010s that came to join incredibly risky ventures or start their own, they saw themselves sort of as pioneers. They saw themselves as exercising, you know, a lot of boldness. Welcome to the Conservative Curious Podcast, where we uncover niche thinkers at the intersection of philosophy, tech, and culture. I'm your host, Jessica Dang, alongside my friend and co-host, Ani Pai. In this episode, we talk to Andrew So, whose latest project is a documentary film called Silicon Valley Dropouts, which details the stories of ambitious young techies who came out to the Bay Area in the early 2010s with the hopes of building their empires. We talk about strange living situations, the distinction between achievements and adventures, how cold emails are underrated, and why Silicon Valley has never been successfully recreated anywhere else in the world. So, Andrew, what made you want to do this project? Several months ago, this was pre-quarantine, obviously, I hosted a bonfire with a few friends over at Ocean Beach and invited maybe 40 or 50 people. I I met a girl there. She was a friend of a friend, and she was a 3L from Michigan Law School. And I was just telling her a little bit about my story, a little bit of my background, asking her about law and whatnot. When I mentioned that I dropped out of school, she had this look of shock upon her face. And it struck me then, I was like, oh yeah, for the rest of the world, dropping out of university is a really odd thing to do. Like people either don't attend university and they work in a trade or some kind of manual labor perhaps, or they attend university and go on to white collar work. To kind of split the difference is really weird. For her, it was especially odd because I said, half the people at this social gathering are dropouts. And so I just start calling out names. I'm like, hey, James, hey, Sarah, like, did you drop out of school? What year? What major? And I thought, man, it's so cool that I have this massive friend group from this incredibly unique background. And for me, it just seemed like, oh, this is normal because I've been around it for the past several years. But to outsiders, they have no clue. For many of them, they have no clue that this is a subculture. Jess, the article I sent you in the California Sunday Magazine entitled The Real Teens of Silicon Valley, that was that your first time reading it when I sent it to you? It was. So I consider this article a piece of Silicon Valley lore. And I think that it is the most honest and earnest portrayal of Silicon Valley dropouts to date. And for people who haven't read the article... It's interviews with a lot of young people that have dropped out of school and who lived in a massive hacker house called Mission Control in the Mission neighborhood of San Francisco. They were all building companies. And looking back, a lot of these people have become incredibly successful. Like one guy leads an agency. This one guy, his startup was bought by Apple. And I like that there was no fetishizing of tech. It didn't try to be satirical or snide in any way. It was just very honest. And I think that there are very few portrayals of Silicon Valley that are like that. I think that a lot of media has become very critical. Articles in the New York Times and equivalent journals 
I think HBO's Silicon Valley does a really good job portraying a lot of the truths, but because they take a satirical lens, I think that a lot of people don't even realize that the stuff that was parodied is real. Like every single unusual scene from that show is something that we encounter in real life. So you're LOLing all day long. I almost think that it could be like a reality TV show. I mean, the way that Nellie Bowles wrote the article, it felt like a reality TV show, didn't it? Yeah. And I think they try to make it a TV show. I think MTV tried to pick it up, but no dice. That article, HBO, Silicon Valley, and to complete the trifecta, David Fincher's The Social Network, I think is the single greatest inspiration for what Silicon Valley is today. Facebook was just getting started, but its exposure and certainly its mythos was not what it could be without David Fincher's movie. Almost everyone I know that moved out here in the early 2010s was inspired by this movie. And it became such a formative part of their identity. And I went back to rewatch it and there is part of it that is hero worship and there's parts of it that are fantastical. But I think it gets the core elements right. A lot of people that were just sick of university, they wanted to build something cool and they just wanted to go for they just wanted to go for adventure. This isn't gonna come out next year. This might not come out in the next two or three years. If I get this made in the next ten years, I'll be ecstatic. I was brought up to think that a university degree was insurance on your life, basically. Are you saying that you don't need a university degree? This is where I struggle to give advice because I would never, 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 never in a million years recommend someone to forgo a university education. Number one, if you're going to drop out, you've already decided and you don't need my advice. Like the people who drop out and go on to join startups or start their own companies or do any kind of venture, they've made up their mind already. No one's going to dissuade them. Second is, I do think attending university is good, but not for the reasons that our parents or the older generations suggest. You mentioned that you grew up being told that it was an insurance policy. Like, okay, well, as long as you have a diploma, people will give you a job. I think anyone that entered the workforce or started school post-2008 saw how volatile the job market and the economy was. So for them, it's like, there are no guarantees in the job market. People would definitely give up all of this, quote unquote, freedom to have more security. That's kind of what the college system shows, right? It's like, give me the path. Just tell me what I need to do to be successful. But the problem now is that there's no such thing as a path or a defined path. You're either compelled to do something or you're not. Like you're producing stuff or you're just consuming stuff. My parents are immigrants and they used to just threaten by saying, if you drop out of school, you're going to work at McDonald's for the rest of your life. Like dropout was a derogatory term. I think it's cool that your project is showing dropout in a different light. It's very odd. That term dropout has become almost a source of pride for many. And I don't say that in a joking way, like honestly. For the people that came in the early 2010s that came to join incredibly risky ventures or start their own, they saw themselves sort of as pioneers. They saw themselves as exercising you know, a lot of boldness. So to be a dropout and to put literally your livelihood on the line and your future on the line for adventure and riches, it is something to be proud of. 
I think it's most applicable to the term of pirates, at least what Eric Weinstein says of like, well, these people lie, cheat, beg and steal to win. And there's no other part of American society where these dropouts who are in technology, you know, you've seen them, Travis Kalanick, uh, Neumann, whoever, not that they were dropouts, but in the way of that they had this piratical mentality of just doing anything that it takes. And Americans love that. Yeah, I like that analogy of pirates. And it's been used to refer to a lot of Silicon Valley innovators as far back as Steve Jobs. There's something unique about dropouts in that they almost revel in breaking rules. Even to drop out of school is to break a social norm. And I think back to something Peter Thiel said about the PayPal mafia, those founders of PayPal and X.com, is that a fair number of them had built homemade bombs in high school. While I don't encourage young people to play with fire or explosives in any way, it kind of gave insight into the mindset of these founders where it's like, okay, they're they're a little bit crazy and they like to play with fire. They don't really care about rules and they're in it for a bit of fun. Did you feel that this was a huge opportunity then to highlight these people now that we're entering a new phase of technology and it's time to recount the past? I think now is an opportune time because enough time has elapsed where you can look upon it with nostalgia. For a number of people, they have closure about some of the bad stuff that happened. No story is all sunshine. Like People go through bad times. I think the number one feeling I wanted to evoke was sitting around a campfire and telling old war stories. The way I think about Silicon Valley's history is in three distinct waves. The first one is the founding of Apple and all its peers with HP and Silicon Graphics and Xerox Park and very grassroots innovation. And then there was the dot-com boom in the late 90s and then the subsequent bust. The most recent wave was more focused on social media, network effects, and mobile apps, which began 2009-ish and after 2010. In my head, I think that it's petered out. I think all we have left are embers from the zeitgeist. Why do you say that? Because in the early 2010s, it felt bootstrappy. Like it was still quote unquote startups. It was still young people. It was still college dropouts that came here that they really just wanted to build something. For a lot of founders, they weren't necessarily trying to become rich and they weren't necessarily trying to create these mega corporations. They just wanted to build and they just wanted to create an impact in a way and to create something of substance. They all matured to the point where now we have the Facebooks and the Googles and the Ubers and the Netflix, and it's all giga corporations. That's kind of what Silicon Valley has become. It's reached a sort of mature state. I feel like the pandemic has decentralized the tech industry, so I'm not really sure if Silicon Valley is still this beacon for the future. I don't think it is. And this is just my opinion. And among people sort of around my age that came to the tech scene in the early 2010s, we all kind of feel that interest in tech and startups is waning. However, when I talk to current college dropouts that are 19 or 20, incredibly bright kids that left enormously prestigious schools like MIT or Carnegie Mellon or whatever, and they still came here, to them, there's no difference. Of, of course, the pandemic is a speed bump but they still see tech as an incredibly exciting and lucrative place to be. To them, it seems almost obvious, especially if you're an engineer. It's like, oh, why wouldn't you want to be in what is the mecca of tech? 
in the last few years, we've kind of missed a lot of these other tech booms that other countries have realized, like crypto is not really a thing in, in America as it is in other places. That's one example. But even across other tech fields, I think people realize that all these major giants just suck up all the air in the room. Yeah, that's that's a great point. For people to move to, to San Francisco or the Bay Area in general, one, it's just heinously expensive to live here. So that eliminates millions and millions of potential candidates. It's got its host of problems where if you struggle to fit into the culture of Silicon Valley, you have trouble networking or trouble finding work, I guess. It's reached a point where I don't think that homogeneity of thought is a good thing. Why did you drop out in the first place? I wish I had some grand answer, but it ultimately came down to being incredibly frustrated with school. There's this total loss where I spend all my time doing the work and the professors don't even care about it. It's not really that practical for a lot of the subjects. And it's like, man, we're all just kind of wasting our time. I spent a summer interning at a startup and it was incredibly rough. Worked maybe 80, 90 hour weeks, a lot of nights at the office, like literally sleeping under the desk sometimes. The thought of contributing and building something tangible was more exciting than being at school. And I thought, I just can't return to school. This is the life I have to live. I don't really see the grandeur of SF. It doesn't have that feeling of the future. And so I think it's interesting that people still talk about the Bay Area having the capital and the talent. So it's pretty funny because people keep mentioning SF as the tech capital, but SF is always the stepchild to the South Bay in that way. The real innovation always happened in the South Bay, but then all the young people would just prefer to live in San Francisco. I think if people took a step back to see the biotech stuff and the space stuff happening in the South Bay, they might not be so quick to judge. But yeah, I mean, SF has always had these young people who work in tech, but the city is in disarray. University Avenue has led to some of the biggest tech success stories of all time. Facebook, Palantir. This is all on one street, by the way, Machine Zone, Kinko Bioworks. If they were a tech company that started relatively at the beginning of the boom, I mean, PayPal, it was all on University Avenue. There's no other street in America that kind of has that unfettered capitalism like University Avenue in Palo Alto. I think there's just something about that street and the vicinity to Stanford and everything that makes it such a eclectic place to live and work. You shared a, an article with us called The Real Teens of Silicon Valley. It was such an interesting look <laughs> at these teenagers who had the gusto to convince their parents to let them go live in San Francisco in these group homes and everything. Are there still teenagers living in these apartments together? Oddly enough, I don't think it's happening as much in SF. I do think it's happening much more in LA. Not necessarily in tech, but they're employing tech to create. In my head, these are eventually going to be media megacorps. So the TikTok stars or the Byte stars or the Instagram stars, I think they are the continuation of the tech innovation we saw in the past decade. I have more hope in them than I do in San Francisco, honestly. I've read stories of people who bought a one-way ticket to San Francisco from a different country and slept on the beach and gave themselves a three-month deadline to make something of themselves, which I think is really badass. But where do you start? If I had three months in the Valley and I just moved here, I would basically DM as, so, as many people on Twitter as I could asking to meet up. And I know people for whom they've had that deadline on three months and Twitter has been the thing that saved them. Wow. Yeah. 
a lot of people have taken a lot of different approaches. I'm hesitant to name them. <laughs> like it, it is, it is going back to what Ani mentioned—a sort of pirate mentality where you have to be extra scrappy and you have to ignore a lot of rules and social norms to, to get your foot in the door. I think everyone in SF has an odd housing situation story where people begged friends to sleep on their couch, or I know people who literally lived in walk-in closets. People lived in their cars. People have lived in the back of U-Haul trucks. People have lived in boats. It's an almost mania that consumed the city of people that wanted to do anything and everything they possibly could to get their foot in the door. I had a friend who moved to Marina del Rey and slept in his friend's closet, a walk-in closet, like what you just said. I guess it's not as uncommon as I thought, but um, I remember I came over and I said, "Why don't you have a mattress? Why are you sleeping on the floor?" And he said, "It pushes me harder to try to make something. I don't want to get too comfortable." Isn't that an interesting mentality? Part of it scares me. Looking back in hindsight, and again, I don't recommend that young people do this because what they don't consider is the win rate. And I use this term very specifically, and I, I want to give it context because in gaming, it could be video games, it could be professional sports. People are very meticulous at calculating their chances of winning. For Silicon Valley specifically, there are hundreds of stories you could find, and you could pluck out different anecdotes of, okay, well, this person came here with a hundred bucks in their pocket, and they lived on their friend's couch, or they lived in a closet, or. Maybe they even slept on the street, and they were cold emailing all these different CEOs, or they were, I don't know, doing some kind of freelance work, like anything that they could possibly do to, in a sense, grab onto the rocket ships at the time. That is the the startups that had astronomical growth. And when you look at the context for each person's journey, they have a higher win rate if they come from a good family, if they have some wealth, if they have. Some morsel of privilege or like a genuine fallback. I don't encourage people who have their last dollar to just gamble it away. That's something I really want to highlight. For a lot of the people that came here, yes, they took enormous risks, but I, I don't think a large percentage of them would have genuinely become homeless if they failed. Even with the quote-unquote failure stories you see in this industry. A lot of them I find really pompous, where the CEO of some company will talk about their failure stories, and they're like, "Oh yeah,、uh, this startup of mine failed, and then I joined this venture fund, and then this venture fund failed." I was talking to my friend、uh, Gabriel Laidon, who is like one of the most famous gaming entrepreneurs of all time, and ran Machine Zone, which is the top-grossing mobile free-to-play game company in the world. I was telling him like, oh my god, you know, like, what if this fails? What if that fails? He's like, don't think about it. Nobody I've ever met in technology who keeps trying and really wanted it has ever failed in the broader timeline. Like, they might have failed at a startup, but over time, they always ended up successful.、And、I was like, wow, can you name not one person who that didn't happen to? He's like, no, everyone. Like everyone he thought who was super dedicated to what they wanted to do with their life always ended up succeeding. And maybe they didn't go make SpaceX. But like none of them ended up broke and homeless and average. They all were exceptional people by the time they were forty. Like an individual startup, right? Might fail, but really, when they keep at it, maybe it's the second time, the third time. The people who were just destined—not destined, but the people who really gave it their all—always ended up winning in the end.
You have to be relentless and you have to have the will. Yeah, that's all that matters, at least in my experience and at least what he said. It's like, if you don't have the will, you have nothing else. You know, things can always go wrong, but is this the person who has grit and tenacity to keep going? And uh, at least he was saying that this current breed of people, the young people coming to the valley don't have that. But I guess that's what all people say, right? Just the younger (laughs) generation is always screwed. I think every young person comes out here trying to be their hero. It doesn't matter if you came out here in the 90s trying to be Steve Jobs or you came out here trying to be Peter Thiel or you looked up to Zuckerberg or Elon Musk. Everyone wants to create something great. You can't move out here with tiny ambitions. You you just can't. If you have a very tiny ambition, you'd be content to stay in a small town or in a small industry to create something small. To come out here, you really need a lot of guts. And for a lot of people, that doesn't happen. And it disheartens them. It's, it's tragic. Is there ever a case where people see a really talented teenager and they overinflate their talent because of their age? All the time. I mean, Elizabeth Holmes was basically that, right? She's the female Steve Jobs. And every time that people try to tell them, no, she wasn't, they were like, oh, you're not being feminist. And it's like, what? I mean, who cares if it's a feminist story? If you're killing people with your technology, then you're definitely not the female Steve Jobs. I think, especially now, people have become more discerning of quote-unquote prodigies. There are people who do get inflated, but as a whole, it's far less than it used to be. And they're a little bit jaded, honestly. There's so many false startups and you've got your different Theranoses and, and Uber scandals where it's like people really want to look down to like, all right, is this something of substance? Are the financials straight? Like, is your corporate culture okay? Like, They want to make sure that you're not just a fraud. In some sense, you know, because I'm, I've never been in the startup world, but just from an outsider looking in, it feels almost like a con. <laughs> Or you have to kind of believe your own con to get funding. I don't know. I'm just saying. I think anyone successful kind of realizes that. At least I saw this. I was way more bookish as a kid. And then as I got older, I was like, nobody respects me for my intelligence. They respect me for how good I can sell stuff and how charismatic I am. I mean, this is why people say it's not what you know, it's who you know, simply because if I had to estimate the amount of feedback I've gotten, it's like, oh, wow, you're a really good speaker. And it's never like, oh, wow, you're so smart. It's usually that I'm a good speaker and not that I'm smart, which is like, I would, you know, that's just so opposite to who I am inside. Oh, <laughs> okay. well, you know, I guess like number one rule is be likable. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's my advice to, to younger me. Like I was such, um, such a brat. I was like, oh man, if I could just get people to like me, like my life would have been easier. Yeah, exactly. There's no, here's how to succeed. Step one. Well, succeed is kind of a buzzword in this case, because it's like succeed on what level, right? If you want to be Elon, you know, there's no path there. Well, the path to being okay in life is like work at Facebook. So if you do things, it's kind of like, is that better than the risk-free rate of me just, I don't know, trying not to kill myself at Facebook or something (laughs) like that? (laughs) Employees, I mean, at this point, right, it's become such a charade and so shambolic that they're like, is this even risk-free? Like I work 120 hour weeks, I could just be doing something somewhere else and not hate my life. But yeah, I think there's a path to mediocre success, but there is no path to like, oh my God, I want to be Steve Jobs or anything like that. At that point, you just have to maximize volatility. I think that's the only path, like be as interesting as possible and avoid boring people. But Andrew, the Silicon Valley dropouts that you were talking about, they're not teenagers coming out with the goal of working at Facebook, right? 
I think everyone that dropped out of school came out here wanting to build something for themselves. If they became discouraged or faced a lot of speed bumps along that road, you know, a lot of them end up joining Facebook or Google or Salesforce or whatever. But I think everyone that came out here wanted to build something for themselves and, I don't know, like an empire that they could reign over. And when they come out here, are they taken seriously? They are. They are. I genuinely think that. I think that this is something that Silicon Valley has done really, really well in recognizing the talent and intellect and capability of young people. When I think about young people, like age, age really doesn't matter at all. They're limited in their experiences in what they've seen and done and, and what they've encountered. But the internet has opened our eyes to thousands, like millions even, of, of incredibly talented young people. It doesn't matter if they're in the US or Canada or Nigeria or India. Like, they're these kids that they're not prodigies. There's nothing special about them. It's just maybe that they played chess six hours a day or they coded every day of their life just for fun. Or maybe they've just been writing a book ever since they were in middle school. When I see some 18-year-old talent, I don't think, oh, they know nothing. For them, the sky's the limit on what their capacity is. When I interviewed for an organization out here, one of the founders said to me, hey, do you have 10 minutes tomorrow for a chat, a quick chat? And I said, sure. And what I didn't realize is that that meant it was a formal interview. I later learned on Twitter that this is a thing in Silicon Valley where they'll just say like, hey, do you have time for a chat? And it sounds super casual when it's really like, hi, okay, here's the first question kind of thing. And so what I learned is that there is a very unique uh, social code and etiquette in Silicon Valley. I was wondering if you've encountered certain do's and don'ts that you could share, like DMing or cold emailing. Is that a do or a don't? That is a do with certain caveats. I've always been impressed with the culture of people in Silicon Valley and by extension, sort of tech Twitter. People are incredibly eager and open to receiving cold emails, cold DMs. They're very helpful as long as you don't waste someone's time. So a thing that a lot of young people don't realize is that for people who are working or people who are running companies, the time is incredibly valuable. Like no one has time to hop on a 30 minute call if they don't know you. I'll happily call my friends for you know an hour or two hours. But if I just receive some cold DM, oh, hey, I really like the thing you're working on. Uh, let's just stop on a call for 30 minutes. Like, uh, I don't really know you. The worst is always, hey, can I ask you a question? It's like, well, you've already wasted my time by not asking it in the first place. But in general, I do feel like there is a culture of helpfulness and of kind of pay it forward. I know I'm super aggressive with this stuff. I think even for how much I do it, I don't do it enough because there are so many people who actually I can't even bring it up on the podcast that I've been able to meet that that should not have been the case just because I DM them in the right way. What's the right way? Super short and to the point. Like you should just say, I like your stuff, but I'll keep this short. And people always respect that. No one ever wants a long message. I can't think of a single person I've met in my life who's like, oh, you write long emails. I love that. You should always just keep it short, keep it simple, um, and try to get to a phone call as fast as possible. And then the next question you'll probably ask is, oh, why a phone call? Because that's really where people will, if you are good, they'll just extend the conversation. Yeah. I think that's that only happens on phone calls or you know video. It doesn't happen over text because like I'll just drop text messages if they're not interesting. 
There is a VC on Twitter who actually screenshots annoying messages and tweets about them. I mean, there are a lot of people I think who would just give up when they do that to them, but it's like, no, fix your approach, keep going, just keep learning and keep getting better. Man, that's, um, I don't want you to name them, obviously, but I think that's kind of a shitty thing to do. Oh, of course. It says more about the VC than about the person, right? I, I really do respect people with an incredible amount of tenacity, where in their mindset, they're tenacious, but obviously respectful. So if you get a firm no, like absolutely 100% no, you can always move on. But goodness, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm just I'm just kind of baffled that someone would take the time to publicly humiliate someone that reached out. And I'm assuming just for help or just to ask a question. Which leads me to the point where I feel like cold emailing is just it doesn't work. I think I'm, I'm the living proof. That's the opposite example. Every good opportunity in my life has been the result of a cold email. Really? Yeah. I've never, I've never formally applied to a job in my life. I had this problem when I was living in London. I didn't know anybody, but I had that same, like, I'm going to find a job, even if it kills me. And uh, I ended up finding a job because I just cold emailed everybody and got invited to some interesting parties. And yeah, but all result of cold emails. Cold emails, but with research. Not really. I think at that point, I was just super stupid. I just like use a template. And I was like, I'm just going to spam it out. And uh, that was super dumb in hindsight. But you know, I was pretty desperate. And I was stupid, uh, or more stupid than I am now, I guess. And somehow it worked out. But you know, I think cold emails still have a lot of way to go just because people don't do it. I mean, you just have to be persistent. Jessica, in your case, I think perhaps since you don't have much experience with sending out a bunch of cold emails, you'd be surprised at how effective it can be. And there's something I wanted to touch on. This actually relates back to the matter of Silicon Valley norms, where it's become a very, what's the word? It's just become a very like delicate and heated social climate where people, especially in the Bay, kind of enforce these very strict social norms upon the industry and particular philosophical viewpoints that people have to hold or certain opinions about politics or race or gender. And one of the most prevailing social norms is the thought that women as a whole are oppressed in the tech industry. And while there is some merit to that idea that perhaps they don't have as much privilege as upper middle class white and Asian men, I do think that they have certain advantages. Going back to cold emails, I think that women underestimate how open other people are to respond to them and meet with them. Because the tech industry as a whole, it feels overwhelmingly male. All the parties and every social event I've ever, ever been to in San Francisco is like 10 to 1 male to female. Well, Andrew, you remember when we first met, right? At the New Friend party. I mean, look at that gender ratio. That blew my mind. Yeah, it almost felt 50-50. Yeah, but all these other get-togethers, right? It's like, that's really where the power lies. And very intimate get-togethers or the hikes that people do or, you know, the after-work drinks and talks, whatever, that other people are not invited to. You know, that's really the seat of power. If you're not invited to those, you just really miss out on all these opportunities that other people are lucky to get if they have the chance. A lot of it just has to do with getting people to like you, making some friends, making some even allies Sometimes I feel like you can be very uh, talented in a tech respect and, you know, you could start a company, but you might not be that interesting as a person. Is that possible too and still succeed? I think so. Yes. However, I genuinely believe that's the biggest problem that a lot of young people face. And this is something that I've rarely heard offered as advice. 
a lot of brilliant minds come out here and they may have invented stuff. They may have enormous accomplishments, but you meet them in person and they're just uncharismatic. They're, they're not very likable. They're perhaps a little strange, a little bizarre. And I wish there was a way that I could convey that in a nice way. It's like, display a little bit of confidence and be conversational. Like a lot of these young men, and it's overwhelmingly young men, they've spent years just sitting in front of a computer or sitting at a desk and perhaps they're not very social and they come out here. And I do think the Silicon Valley ecosystem is a very social environment. And so blending in in that way is is crucial. Is there good taste in Silicon Valley? Like at a certain stratosphere? I mean, you look at San Francisco, people always make fun of how there's a lack of style, but there's so much money here. Is there just bad taste or it's not shown or what? what's going on in the Bay Area? <laughs> that's That's such a funny question. I think that it's actually not a matter of taste. People in San Francisco and in the Bay Area as a whole, they dress, I mean, they dress terribly, but... I think it's actually an extension of New England wasp culture. I genuinely believe this, where people don't wear things and they don't buy things and they don't have a certain sense of taste and style based on what they like. They do it because it's the Duriger uniform for their social class. For Silicon Valley tech, there's a stereotype of the the Adams shoes or the Allbirds and the Patagonia fleece vest. Like these are these are practical items, but people don't wear them because they think, oh, this looks so cool, or like, oh, I really like this. They do it because everyone else around them is dressed in this way. And so fitting in is a very important thing. So a sense of conformity. Yeah, absolutely. And This is incredibly controversial to say, but in that sense, San Francisco has been the most conservative place ever lived. And I'm from the South. Everyone here comes from the same social background. They all went to the same schools. They all pretty much dress the same. They all have pretty much the same hobbies. They all go to the same restaurants. It feels like a remix of uh, American Psycho, where everyone's kind yeah. of a clone. You come out here with this pioneering spirit, and then you end up being a tech bro wearing a Patagonia vest. Yeah, I think people don't realize how many people in the Valley don't actually want to start a company. That blew my mind, at least when I was lucky enough to meet a lot of these people, and they were just kind of happy. Uh, you know, when I think about Google, right, I think what Google has done for the tech ecosystem has been terrible because. They hire these people, give them like 200K a year when they're 21, and then just convince them to never leave with the golden handcuffs. And so that really hurts a lot of the tech e- ecosystem because they can't hire these people because they can't pay that much. And if they can't pay that much, then it's like, oh, I'd rather stay at Google. And they kind of lose this ambition from Google, Facebook, uh, Netflix even. And yeah, it's pretty detrimental to new companies in that way. Oh my, it's totally like the matrix. I remember I worked for this company that found a loophole in the research and development tax incentive. And they're like the only agency that specialized in this IRS application. (laughs) They offered things like, you know, free massages and free this and that. At first, it sounds like a perk, but it was just a ploy to get you to stay at work forever. Once I realized that, I was like, oh my God, I have to leave this place. And I can only imagine the people at Google must be living in this bubble where they can't leave. They definitely feel like they can't, which sucks. It's it's like when you get to the top of any field, you kind of realize that it probably wasn't what you thought it would be. 
the best thing these young startup founders could do is break these tech monopolies because when when you break them more people are incentivized to just go off and do their own thing you can't just rely on facebook and google like eating 60% of ad dollars like you actually just you know have to hit the ground running Andrew, you know how you said that you've worked at like a dozen companies and in each place you're amongst the first 20 employees? Longevity has been prized in employment, but it seems like the trend is moving towards something different. I do think we are in a radically different economy and job market compared to even 20 years ago. And San Francisco in particular in the Bay Area is even an outlier there where I know a lot of people who've spent six months at this company, eight months at this company, a year, and then it's just a list of year-long tenures. Part of it was fueled by the tech boom, where if you just jumped ship and went to a different startup, you might get a 10 15% raise. And so you do that every single year for six years straight. It does wonders for your career because you even upgrade your title every time too. So it's the only place in the world where you go through people's LinkedIn and you see 24-year-old VPs. And having these six-month stints on your resume, it's not a bad thing. In hindsight, I, I do think so. At the time, it felt invigorating because you get a constant string of new experiences. And startups in particular, they move at such a breakneck pace where six months at a place feels like three years anywhere else. You don't even need to be in the office that much. You could be in the office 45, 50 hours a week, but you're doing so much, especially if you're a team of 10, if you're a team of 20, you don't just have your role. You might not just work on software or accounting or HR or whatever. Everyone has to help out in a comprehensive way. You might get a dozen roles worth of responsibilities and you're working so, so furiously fast that it feels like time is accelerated. You've also drawn a distinction between achievement and adventure. And you've said that you're more interested in adventure than achievement. <laughs> I think I've had my fill of adventure. I've had enough adventure for two lifetimes. But yeah, there there is um there is something thrilling about the unknown. And for my generation of of young people who came out here, it was not just the thought of riches that enticed them. And so I think that that's a major misconception where in the past people thought, oh, okay, well, you're going to move to Silicon Valley. It's just because you want to make a some billion dollar app and IPO and then go live in the Bahamas or something. But a lot of these people are drawn to adventure. They're drawn to this kind of, at the time, what was essentially a gold rush. And so I imagine for a lot of the, the 49ers that came out to San Francisco in the 1800s that yeah, you, you think about, okay, well, am I going to find nuggets of gold in the river? But there's the whole aspect of like, okay, well, we got a journey over there and what will California look like? And okay, you get to live in these villages with thousands of other people who are just like you, who are, who are just toiling their ass off. <laughs> with optimism. Yeah, there's a, there's a sense of manifest destiny about this place. Do you guys think that Silicon Valley is still the beacon? Oh, for sure. It's because every other place sucks so badly. <laughs> like that's the best way to say it. Like it's it's not even that, oh, we're doing like so well. Everything is, you know, we have flying cars and all that stuff. That's not it. But it's that every other place in the world is doing so badly that it's at uh, like a last man standing type of thing. 
Do you think, for example, like in London, they would pay big bucks for someone in AI or? No, no way. My friend who does a lot of hiring and software in London said that they give them at least a 70% pay cut. Wow. The salaries in London are like insanely low. You would think that they'd they'd have a huge demand for that talent. Uh, Not really. It's because it's actually because of uh, immigration laws. So you can get somebody from Poland to be a software engineer at a much cheaper rate than anyone else. And so the median wage of a software engineer in London is about 23K. What? Yeah. My actual thesis is that coding is not a hard skill. The only reason Americans pay a lot for programmers is because of immigration. Like we don't have enough people to do that skill. And uh, the amount of computer science graduates has remained stagnant. Like not many people, not more people are going to computer science despite the demand for it. So because we capped immigration and because a lot of Americans don't want to go into computer science, it's like the salaries remain high. But across the world, it's not a difficult skill. Like there's so many people in India, Europe, China who can do these things. And so that's what they underpay in Europe. But of course, you know, if you are the one out of five people in the world who knows a specific computer vision algorithm and you are in London, like, sure, I mean, because you have that unique skill, like DeepMind or whomever will pay you a lot of money for that. But if you're a run-of-the-mill, like Cambridge computer science graduate, yeah, you're not making big bucks. Is there a Silicon Valley equivalent in Europe? Uh, well, they pretend there is, but I don't think so. I mean, I've been <laughs> all of them. Uh, I wouldn't classify any of them in the same way. Like, um, you know, London has Silicon Roundabout. Um, that's like supposed to be the most famous one. Barcelona has a Silicon something. Amsterdam. They all they all try to do it. It's like they all call a Silicon something, but it's exactly because they just try to ape Silicon Valley that they'll never be successful. And what's the difference? Is it capital and the talent? Yeah. And the risk, it's actually that a lot of people don't want to get paid in stock. So if you don't want to take on risk and you'd rather take cash, then startups can't succeed, right? You need people who are willing to be like, don't pay me so much. I want to take stock. But people in Italy have no idea of what that entails. Like They're like, no, give me more cash. And it's like, no, we don't have cash. You need to take stock, right? So that's why it's so hard in other places because like America attracts those people who are like, no, pay me a dollar a year. I want my salary mostly in stock. I'll just take a loan for your cash. The rest of the world doesn't have the same appetite for risk. That is the biggest ingredient, I think. That's the most fundamental reason. Capital you can get in this world we live in now. Talent, you could also find a way to get. But if they don't have risk, it's like you're over. Ani, I want to add to that. I like the way you mentioned risk. And I think it also relates to cultural boldness. And I think that's where... Silicon Valley, and I don't refer to Silicon Valley as a place in the sense, I mean, Silicon Valley, almost ideologically, is a much bolder place to live. In my experience visiting these other quote-unquote tech capitals, they always say that they're innovating in this way or that way, and they say, okay, well, we want to attract more talent, we want to attract more capital, but a lot of the ideas are often so lowly. It's normally like, we want to build an Uber for dogs, or what's the TikTok for old people? It's often not bold at all, incredibly lame. And if it's not bold, how's it going to be lucrative? That's why I really admire incredibly grand ideas, even stupid ideas. People look up the Elon Musk, but if you look inside this guy's head, he's like, okay, I want to put the human race physically on Mars because this earth is just going to be a wasteland eventually. And in a cognitive sense, I want to upload it to this digital network, like 
all of humanity's brains will be on software. These are the kind of ideas that fuel the most ambitious hubs. So for the people who are trying to ape that, but have no appetite for risk and therefore are not bold, it's like you're almost running mom and pop startups. The problem that I see with Silicon Valley and the Bay Area, which is supposedly the tech capital of the world, is that you don't see it physically manifested. So, for example, I go to Copenhagen and, you know, they're trying to build a tech hub over there. But when you go to a city like Copenhagen, it feels like the future. You don't have that here. And I don't know why that is. It's like a cognitive dissonance. You're like, oh, this is supposed to be the future. It looks like a third world. I actually think it's because it's impossible to build in the real world. I mean, how many smart people do you know that actually want to do civil engineering, right? Probably zero. (laughs) And that's for good reason, right? It's like anything in the real world is just super painful and takes a lot of this political leaning to build. I think there's this uh, saying in computer science about their greedy algorithm of you just take whatever is the easiest path and... uh, therefore the most valuable and you just do that next. And if you keep doing that, you actually get sent to a very bad place because you're just veered off track. And I think that's what's happened with software in general. It's just easier to build, but then everything we do is software leaving the physical world into this mess that we see, like $1 million homes for like, I don't know, 1200 square feet. Like those things should not happen. I don't know anyone that thinks that's okay, right? It's a, yeah, it's an incredibly bizarre place of contrast. And speaking of Denmark, just FYI, they don't have Amazon or Uber there, but they feel very technologically advanced, but it could just be an illusion. I definitely know what you're referring to. Like, it definitely feels super technological and uh, like the future is here. But then I kind of see like what great company has like a rose out of Denmark. And I can't really think of any, you know, some areas focus a lot more on like, oh, we look amazing, but then nothing's happening underneath the surface. And then some places... Like South Bay look terrible, but then there's actually so much that's happening, it's hard to keep track. Yeah, like Palo Alto just looks like this quaint little town. Yeah, I love that. I just love how tiny it feels in comparison to the ideas that people have. Do you think one day there will be a movie about Airbnb or WeWork? Or- no, there'll definitely be a WeWork movie. I can tell you that 100%. Um, they're talking about that right now. But I hope there's not an Airbnb movie. Jesus. I think there's a lot of movies that deserve to be made. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of them probably highlight scandals, which is a shame. But um, yeah, there's 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 a lot of stories that haven't been told because the people here have just been building. And I think there's a lot of merit to creating media about our experiences. What do you think we're gonna learn about the stories of the people you profile in your project? I think people are gonna be surprised by the darkness that people experience. Life really is a roller coaster. So you get enormous highs, but you have soul-crushing lows. Yeah, this is this is this is very dark. There's something about San Francisco, and I don't know how many people share this experience, but it's quite haunting to have the Golden Gate Bridge be so close. And it, it is a symbol of engineering magnificence and it is a tourist attraction that pulls in millions to see it but um it's it's got a dark side where if you run a hundred million dollar company and it blows up you you just look at that bridge and you think you know i could i could just stop the pain like i could just jump from the bridge like no one no one really wants to be vulnerable and talk about that experience people always wait until after a success to talk about failure 
Like if you read any Silicon Valley failure story, it's always ending in some triumph. Oh, my startup failed. But then however many years down the line, oh, I was hired by some acquaintance and now I'm a VP at whatever multi-billion dollar company. But it takes away from the despair that people genuinely felt. I don't want it to be a snuff movie, but I do want to be comprehensive in my portrayal of what people went through when they came out here. Andrew's vision for his documentary film, Silicon Valley Dropouts, certainly deserves to be made, and we'll be there for it. Thanks for listening. We hope you liked this episode. To keep up with Andrew's project, follow him on Twitter at Andrew Dixon So. That's Andrew Dixon, D-I-X-O-N, So, S-O. As for us, we're working on some exciting projects. To stay connected with what we're doing, get on our list by subscribing at conservativecurious.com. Until next time, stay curious. to suppress my laughter about tiktok for old people i mean i'm probably after we hang up i'm gonna like just guffaw <laughs> <laughs>